This is a Clark University podcast. So there's an area not that far from Johannesburg that's called Mpumalanga. And once I had the great opportunity to do an overfly of this area in a little plane. So they took us up and you fly over this area and it is, so it's not often that I'm gobsmacked. But on that flight, I was gobsmacked. There was mine after mine after mine, power plant after power plant after power plant, and waste rock heap after waste rock heap after waste rock heap, and tailings after tailings after tailings. As far as you could see, it was a completely, completely transformed landscape. Anthony Bevington is the Milton P. and Alice C. Higgins Professor of Environment and Society at Clark's Graduate School of Geography. He's also a member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences and the International Program Director for Natural Resources and Climate Change at the Ford Foundation. Tony grew up in a mining community in England. Decades later, that part of his childhood has become a focus area in his research. He spent years analyzing extractive industries, investigating their impact on communities across the globe. When people refer to extractives, they are typically referring to activities that involve the extraction of minerals, oil, and gas from the subsoil. So extractive industry is that organized industrial activity that does that. The big companies are companies like BHP Billiton, Glencore, Anglo-American, and on and on on the mining side. And on the hydrocarbon side, you have your Chevrons and your British Petroleum and your Shells. It's an open question as to whether it's helpful to only think of extraction and resource extraction as being limited to minerals and hydrocarbons. Because often extraction is also used to refer to that sort of activity that takes something away and doesn't put anything back. Like like it's a one one-way transfer. So in some sense, in farming, you're taking nutrients out of the soil, but you may also fertilize, and so you're putting nutrients back into the soil. Extraction generally refers to taking something out permanently. You could say that forms of agriculture extract water from fossil aquifers. There are forms of harvesting that can become extractions in fisheries. It takes the fishery beyond the point at which it can't come back, and so in some sense that's a permanent withdrawal. So there's an open question as to whether it's helpful to only limit it analytically and politically to minerals and hydrocarbons, but typically that's how it gets used. I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change. Analyzing the impact of extractives requires a political and social discussion. Extractives can be seen as an opportunity or a concern, depending on the context. Part of the argument for extractives is this is a, like a gift of God. You, it's in your subsoil. You actually are blessed to have it there, and you can use that to generate development. The most typically expressed source of concerns are the environmental ones. Those concerns combine the observation that, on the one hand, resource extraction often, not always, but often delivers a permanent change to the landscape, physically and in terms of aesthetics, and that's a source of concern. Extractive activity runs the risk of serious forms of pollution. Activists might say, look, the risk that 
this extraction of minerals from this mountaintop is going to permanently deplete and contaminate our water supply means it's just we don't we we do not want this on our back doorstep the company would say but we can manage that risk with the benefits that will be generated from this extraction we can compensate any adverse impacts there might be another concern is social and livelihood risk that mining displaces people you know, if a community sits on top of a mine site or near a mine site it's got to be moved and therefore people lose their traditional livelihoods. So the combination of fear about environmental risks, loss of livelihoods and arguments over who should control those benefits means that extraction, not always by any stretch of imagination, but it has not infrequently been associated with serious social conflicts. So there's a concern about the quality of development associated with resource extraction. That goes hand in hand with the kind of political concern that require significant capital investments and that also create super forms of wealth. Resource extraction can be associated with, with an emergence of political actors with very unequal levels of political influence. We see this in the form of oil company lobbying in Washington DC. You see it in other contexts in terms of companies displacing presidents and putting somebody else in place who's more aligned with their interests and so on and so forth. So there are environmental concerns, social and economic concerns, and political and quality of development concerns. The flip side would be that saying those concerns are concerns, they can all be managed, resources can be used for the good of society. For activists who want to defend land from extractive industries, the outcome can be deadly. There is an organization called Global Witness based in the UK, and this is the 10th year now of them producing an annual report on killings of environmental defenders. Those reports show, on average, that four people are killed a week, 200 and something a year, and many of those killings have been linked to extractive industries. And in some cases, people working for government authorities. Among environmental defenders who've been killed, who've been classified in those reports, have been frontline workers for environmental agencies trying to enforce environmental regulations. We asked Tony to describe some parts of the world that have been most impacted by the extractives industry. Indonesia was the country where there was most forest loss, and it wasn't the whole of Indonesia. It was one particular province of Indonesia, East Kalimantan, which has enormous coal deposits and enormous coal mines. And there, the coal mining is not like the mining I grew up with, which is underground. This is surface mining. You mine, you destroy the forest. There's no two ways about it. It's a very significant impact on forests. And if it's a significant impact on forests, it's therefore a significant impact on those indigenous communities that previously lived there and claimed those forest lands, if not legally, at least in customary terms, as their territories. And then another piece of work we did with colleagues in Australia was map reported drownings and relate that to the geography of coal mines and abandoned coal mines. The mines close, they move on. Typically, companies leave and they just leave the landscape. One of the things they leave in the landscape are big holes, which then fill up with water, which people then are attracted to to swim in. And so what this showed was that these drownings were basically all associated with these abandoned pits that are filled with water that kids had gone swimming in and then the nature of these pits is that they're difficult to get out of because the cuts are pretty steep. East Kalimantan would be one of those contexts that we'd say this pretty serious impact. It's an enormous contribution to private wealth and to electricity systems and so forth but the impacts are not great for forests, territories and security. 
Tony and colleagues have discovered through rough calculations that the volume of tailings and waste rock that will be produced from the extraction of copper in the first 50 years of this century will be nine times larger than it was in the whole of the last century. In some sense, I guess the way to think of a solution here is it's not a single equation. It's a set of simultaneous equations. And you have to recognize that the solution is that whole set. And within that set, there are trade-offs. So the critical question, and this is the question at the heart of all political systems, is who gets to decide trade-offs? And who gets to decide the criteria on which trade-offs should be made? If those trade-offs in the energy transition are made by the appointed and or self-appointed elite few, then you may get an energy transition, but it will not be a just energy transition. And it will be a transition that further weakens political participation. Tony grew up in a part of England where mining was common. Despite driving by mining sites throughout his childhood, Tony's path to studying extractives was indirect. Stoke-on-Trent, its regional economy was based primarily on coal mining, iron and steel, that of course was historically linked to the presence of coal, and ceramics, potteries, which also was historically linked to coal because coal was used to fire the kilns to blast the pottery. When I was a child, the landscape was the waste rock from having taken, taken the coal out from beneath. Big slag heaps. There were a number of slag heaps that were burning. And I've seen mines burning elsewhere in South Africa not, not that, that long ago. I've been there twice, actually, to this very same site, and, the, and it's still burning underground, and you can look through the hole, and it's like looking into a little volcano. But it's not a volcano, it's just that it's constantly burning under the ground. These pits were burning on top, presumably because of methane escaping and constantly burning. The mines then all closed. The iron and steel mill closed, and now most of the potteries have gone as well. And for a while it was arguably the poorest in England, because it lost such a lot at once and didn't have anything to put in its place. You know, for a period of time, mining there really did foster economic development of sorts. That link between mining and potteries meant that there was periods when Stoke also had the dirtiest air in the UK. So that certain cast of people have tolerated this cost because it also generated lots of jobs. Mine workers then go to the pubs and go to the working men's clubs and they go to the local stores and they sustain the fish and chip shops and it's a whole network of economic relationships. People say, well, you know, there's things you lose and things you gain and we're gaining more than we're losing here. My dad worked with farmers in communities and actually that's what I was drawn to. Along the way, that interest in agriculture and food somehow got connected with an interest in famine and poverty and development. For a number of years, I entertained the two options of wanting to try and work in development or wanting to basically do what my dad did. That path took me to working on rural development and small-scale agriculture, in, initially in the Andean countries. I was not thinking about mining at all in that period. The other thing that happened in the course of my doctoral work is that I met the person who subsequently became my life partner. Early in the 90s, she was doing work in Peru. I was doing work in Peru. And she took me along to a meeting with a mining company. She was doing human rights work and grassroots development work, but for various reasons, I gone to talk with this company. And as we were leaving, she was saying, you should work on this. This is going to become an issue. I didn't pay any attention initially. 
And it just went on from there. I got more and more interested in it. Having come from a region where mining was the base of a regional economy that involved many, many people, it surely does not have to be only harmful. And it surely can be inclusive. It has been inclusive in the past. It doesn't mean when it was inclusive it wasn't also creating harms, it was. And so it's that fascination with under what conditions can this be made to work better in a way, I suppose, that aligns just a little bit more with what I thought I was seeing as a kid. To learn more about geography at Clark, visit clarku.edu geography. A special thanks to Meredith Woodward King for contributing to this episode. Challenge Change is produced by Andrew Hart and Melissa Hansen for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three. Clark! <laughs>